0: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 73 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, a focus on vaccines, first with VITS professor Shabir Mahdi, whose unit was selected by US drug company Novavax to run a critical 2B trial of its coronavirus vaccine. Courtesy of a $15 million donation from the Gates Foundation, Vitz will conduct a 2,900 person trial of the Novavax vaccine. It started recruiting volunteers today. It began a similar trial for the promising Oxford University vaccine seven weeks ago. We'll also hear from our partners at Bloomberg why the civilized world isn't banking on Russia's Sputnik V vaccine, which was announced last week. Also tonight, Discovery's vitality creates fresh incentives to encourage its 65-plus-year-old members to adopt lifestyle habits to better prepare them in the fight against COVID-19. Inside COVID-19, from Biz News. In today's COVID-19 headline, South Africa's Wits University added a second global vaccine trial today as it called for 2,900 volunteers to assist in testing the Novavax drug. Seven weeks ago, Wits started a local trial of the Oxford University vaccine. US-based Novavax said it selected South Africa for what it calls, quote, this important phase 2b clinical trial, unquote, because it had been one of the hardest hit of the countries on earth. The company says the VITs trial has the potential to provide an early indication of the vaccine's efficacy, along with additional data. Lots more on this fascinating story coming up with our in-depth interview with the vaccine trial leader, VITs professor Shabir Mahdi, who was quoted in the Wall Street Journal this afternoon saying the trial will generate evidence of how the vaccine would work in the African context. While the search for a COVID-19 vaccine intensifies, South African infections continue to fall, with active cases dropping to barely 100,000 on Sunday. That's down sharply from the peak of 175,000 at the end of last month. This is the lowest number of active infections of the coronavirus in this country since July the fifth, and it sees South Africa drop further down the global list from a recent fourth to the current tenth. The country is also tenth on new daily infections, seventh of all nations on daily deaths, and thirteenth on total mortalities at 11,839. Globally, the total number of new cases has edged up recently and, after escalating sharply between March and end June, seems to now have steadied around 250,000 a day for the past month and a half. A total of 22 million people have been infected with the virus worldwide, 14.5 million of whom have recovered, 775,000 have died. Inside COVID-19, from Biz News. Well, it's a warm welcome to Professor Shabir Mahdi, who's well known in South Africa as the head of the Infectious Diseases Research Unit at Wits University. You've been busy over the last few months, as I guess many people in your profession have, but a big announcement today that there's another vaccine trial that's going to begin in South Africa through Novavax. Can you just explain a little bit about your relationship with Novavax and how that helped to bring the trial here to South Africa?
1: My uh, sort of background with Novavax is I was uh, the national principal investigator and one of the key investigators in a previous uh, vaccine study of theirs, which was a vaccine that was targeted at vaccinating pregnant women to protect their young infants. It's a vaccine against RSV, respiratory sensitive virus. And South Africa was one of uh, many countries that participated in that study uh, and the data that came out from South Africa, in fact, was uh, of extremely high quality. Uh, and what we were able to show in that particular study is our ability to do high quality research. And in fact, the results that came out from South Africa were highly promising in terms of that particular vaccine. So that is really the background in terms of my where I've developed the relationship with this particular company. Uh, The RSV vaccine study, similar to the study that we're about to embark on with COVID-19 with Novavax, was also funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Foundation.
0: Did you have to twist any arms to bring them to South Africa?
1: Yeah, without question. So I think what we need to appreciate is that right now, globally, there's a huge amount of competition between scientists uh, to be taking part in these sort of vaccine studies. Uh, So it's not that Novavax were rushing and banging on our door for the study to be done in South Africa. Uh, But with the relationship that I had developed with them, it provided me an opportunity to reach out to them to see if they would be keen uh, for a study to be conducted in South Africa. And after some deliberation, it actually this time around it took more longer than it took with University of Oxford to convince them that South Africa is a place for this vaccine studies to be done. Uh, But ultimately, fortunately for us, uh, we've been successful in bringing the study to South Africa.
0: You're also driving the Oxford University uh, vaccine, of which there's much interest in South Africa, not least because we've got a lot of people who've invested in it through through the Oxford company. But that's seven weeks in. For the outsiders, uh, does this mean that Oxford is seven weeks ahead of the Novavax vaccine?
1: Well, certainly in South Africa, they are, and probably at a global level as well. So Oxford are pretty much in phase three studies already. Uh, In South Africa, we're doing the equivalent of a phase 2B study, which still allows us to get an answer as to whether the vaccine protects against COVID-19. But they're doing much larger studies in the United Kingdom as well as in Brazil. And they're planning on starting a much larger study in the United States. And those are sort of the final pivotal studies, the phase 3 studies. So Novavax, at this point are at phase 2, uh, which is one step behind where Oxford is. So certainly the University of Oxford vaccine candidate, the one that's now been taken on by AstraZeneca, is ahead in terms of clinical evaluation. Uh, But which of the two vaccines, if either actually eventually ends up protecting against COVID-19, that is a question that we're trying to address right now. What's the difference between them? So they're fundamentally different in terms of the construct. Uh, The Oxford vaccine is what we know as a non-replicating vector-based vaccine where it uses sort of an adenovirus, uh, which doesn't really cause severe illness in humans, it genetically engineers it, uh, gets that adenovirus to be able to express the spike protein, which is a protein that's of importance to the virus, to the SARS coronavirus, and that's delivered into the human body. So it's a much different technology and there's very few vaccines that have been licensed using that sort of technology. In fact, right now, there's only a single vaccine, which is a Ebola vaccine, that's been licensed using this vector-based technology. The Novavax technology is what we call a protein-based vaccine, which is more sort of a traditional approach in terms of vaccine development. But they've been able to sort of fine-tune it in terms of the manner in which it's actually delivered to the immune system, coupled with an adjuvant, which actually enhances the immune response. So it's a much more traditional tried and tested method in terms of vaccine development compared to the vector-based vaccines. Uh, and that is really where they sort of differ. They do show differences also in terms of the preclinical studies, including in the non-human primates. But it's difficult to make head-to-head comparisons at the same time because the design of the studies are slightly different. But what we saw with a Novavax vaccine candidate, and importantly uh, from a public health perspective, is that in the animal models is able to protect both against upper airway infection as well as lower airway infection. And a vaccine is able to protect against upper airway infection, it would be extremely useful because that's the type of vaccine that you require for you to accelerate what we call herd immunity, where a certain percentage of the population is already vaccinated, yet that benefits uh, basically extends to a much greater percentage or almost all of the population.
0: You mentioned that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation are helping to support the a uh, Novavax vaccine. I think in your statement, uh, it said $13 million that they are contributing.
1: Has there been similar help for the Oxford uh, vaccination study? So, correct. So, both of the studies that have been conducted in South Africa are actually being funded by the and the Gates Foundation. Uh, the, the vaccine by, both, in fact, both AstraZeneca as well as the Novavax, as you might know, both of them have basically are forming part of Operation Warp Speed in the United States, where the US government has put up billions of dollars to sort of uh, procure vaccines that are not yet uh, really licensed. But in terms of the clinical development of the vaccine and the evaluation of these vaccines in low middle income countries, particularly in South Africa, that program is largely being funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And again, the reason for that, like I mentioned earlier, is that there simply isn't any shortage of. Uh, countries and sites for these vaccine studies to be conducted. And at the end of the day, for these vaccines to be licensed in Europe, for the vaccines to be licensed in the United States, unfortunately, the requirements on part of the regulated authorities in those sort of regions is that much of the evaluation in terms of the pivotal phase three studies needs to be undertaken in those countries or countries of a similar sort of uh, demographic, character, demographic profile.
0: So as far as South Africa is concerned, why is it important that the vaccine trials happen
1: here? So the legacy of vaccines, many life-saving vaccines, is that there's been anything between a 5 to 20-year lag between the time when a vaccine becomes uh, licensed and available in high-income countries compared to when it's rolled out into low-middle-income countries. And often the reason for that is because of the absence of data to actually quantify how well those vaccines would actually work in low-middle-income countries. So those sort of clinical studies end up only being done after the vaccine is uh, licensed in a high-income country in many African countries. So the WHO often does not have the evidence to make a firm recommendation that this vaccine would be useful in low-middle-income countries and it would work as well as it works in other settings. So for us to be able to understand just how well these vaccines work and in fact which of the vaccines will probably be more suitable for the African context, it's essential that we get into the game of evaluating these vaccines at an early stage of its development so we can shorten the period of time between when the vaccine is eventually available and when uh, the recommendations come out from the WHO and others for it to be included in immunization programs on the African continent. In addition to which, uh, with a Novavax study at least, what we've been able to negotiate, as you might have seen from the statement released by Novavax, is that should the vaccine be shown to be effective in South Africa, we would pretty much go to the front of the queue in terms of possibly being able to access a vaccine. And both of these vaccines right now, uh, the Paul and Melinda Gates Foundation has actually provided a grant to the Serum Institute in India for the Serum Institute to start producing these vaccines at risk. So again, without knowing whether these vaccines are going to work, the Polymelina Gates Foundation is making that investment. So South Africa would be highly competitive in terms of being able to access these vaccines at an early stage because of us having done, uh, or rather having been involved in the clinical development of these vaccines.
0: That's really good news that they would be prepared to support the production of the vaccine at risk. Uh, without it even uh, being uh, stamped or or, uh, approved yet but presumably they wouldn't have done that uh, just to throw money away there must be a pretty good chance or a pretty good feeling that it is going to work
1: yeah without question Uh, it is a calculated gamble obviously and basically what you've seen is that from the non-human primate uh, studies as well as from the initial phase one studies for both of these vaccines they clearly sort of check the boxes in terms of these being vaccines that are very really likely to be able to protect against COVID-19. So unlike, as an example, the Russian vaccine, which underwent almost no clinical studies, in fact, they studied fewer than 100 participants before the licensed vaccine, are uh, going into production with those vaccines, uh, you're really taking a huge gamble. Whereas with these uh, vaccines that we're referring to, it's a much more calculated risk that you're taking on because you've got some data to show that these vaccines are very likely to protect. The question is, what level of protection are we going to get and whether it's going to protect against both severe disease as well as against upper area infection to try to reduce the transmission that might occur.
0: From the mass media perspective, we uh, have seen a lot of discussion about the race for a vaccine. What happens if, a new lead on both of, of these uh, personally, what happens if they both work? Which one would then be applied?
1: Oh, well, the bottom line is, for COVID-19 vaccines to make a difference in terms of this pandemic, we need more than one vaccine to work. Uh, we actually need at least five vaccines uh, as a minimum to shown to be effective, uh, and that is only the that's the only way in which we'll be able to scale up production in terms of the quantities that are required to be able to immunize even fifty percent of the global population. If we just have a single vaccine that works, unfortunately. Uh, South Africa, as an example, is unlikely to get those vaccines at any meaningful quantity until after the pandemic has passed us by. So it's absolutely essential that we have multiple vaccines that actually are shown to work, not just two vaccines, but at least another two to three vaccines. And the chances of that, unfortunately, is fairly slim uh, because, uh, again, the history, the legacy of vaccines is that it's only about 10 percent of vaccines that go into clinical trials in humans that they're eventually licensed, that they're eventually shown to be safe and effective. So even with the six, seven vaccines that are already in phase three studies, even if those two of those seven vaccines eventually are found to be efficacious, that itself would be a huge, huge success in the scientific community. So I don't think it's about one of which of these two vaccines, it's just the ambition to actually at least have a handful of vaccines that are shown to work over the next few months, to enable enable at least about 10 to 20% of the global community being vaccinated over the course of the next 12 months.
0: Sounds a little like oil exploration. You can draw 10 holes and you're (laughs) lucky if you get one that works. But how many other vaccine trials are being conducted in South Africa right now?
1: So right now, these are only two studies that have been conducted. There's a third study that is likely to start uh, towards the end of September. Uh, that study has been funded by the NIH, and it's part of a multi-country, multi-centered study. Uh, it's a vaccine that's produced by Johnson & Johnson, and it's what we call an Adeno-26 virus vector vaccine. Uh, so similar to the Jump Adenovirus Vector vaccine, uh, but it's using a different Adenovirus construct. Uh, so like I said, that study will be undertaken by Professor Glenda Gray uh, in South Africa as through the... HIV trial network, the HVTN network. But South Africa will be one of many uh, countries that will be contributing to the participants in that particular study.
0: Just as a, a broader question to end off with, for Wits University to be selected for both of these vaccine trials is surely a recognition of, of world class or uh, that, that the university is, despite uh, the critics, are very much recognized as a world-class institution.
1: Yeah, certainly so, and especially when it comes to vaccine development. So my uh, research unit has been doing phase one to phase three studies on new vaccines for the past 25 years. And in fact, we've had a number of firsts on the African continent and from any low-income country in terms of showing which vaccines are of public health value for children as well as for adults and pregnant women. So this is probably one of seven vaccines where we've been pretty much in the lead in terms of its clinical development. And like you mentioned, it's not just about my research. in it. I think, unfortunately, the potential of its university uh, in the field of vaccinology is something that isn't uh, truly appreciated. Unfortunately, partly uh, the blame lies on the part of the university itself in that it hasn't really harnessed that expertise. To the same extent that uh, expertise has been sort of harnessed and consolidated at University of Cape Town, but certainly, uh, interne- and I don't think it's just about being leaders on the continent. Uh, in terms of the type of work that we do, we're highly competitive at in- on the international stage, and that's the reason why we can convince companies uh, for us to form part of their development profile.
0: Inside COVID nineteen from Biz News. Still with vaccines, here's Bloomberg's Laura Carlson asking the big question. How long will it take for the world to have an effective COVID-19 antidote?
2: In the fight against COVID-19, so many are pinning their hopes on a vaccine. But how long will it take? Russia's super fast-tracked COVID-19 one is technically the first in the world. But the first vaccine? May not be the best one. And even with other vaccine trials underway around the globe, it would be wrong to think we can resume normal life as soon as we have one. I spoke to Bloomberg healthcare reporter Michelle Faye Cortez, who explains why Russia's approach to vaccine development is so different and why the world may be expecting way too much from an inoculation. What is actually the realistic timetable of us having a vaccine from where we are right now in the weeks or months ahead?
3: When you think about it, the most advanced trials are going to enroll 30,000 people. Moderna is one of the ones who's in the very forefront of this effort right now. As of the first week of August, they had enrolled about 6% of the 30,000 patients that they're planning on enrolling. That means more than 90% of those 30,000 patients still need to be found, entered into the clinical trial, and get their first injection. The thing to keep in mind is that everybody needs two injections of most of these vaccines, and they have to come a month apart. So if we spend the month of August enrolling patients in this trial, and then we spend the month of September giving everyone the second injection, then perhaps we'll spend the month of October seeing whether or not the vaccine is offering any protection. And the fact that we're seeing some decreasing numbers of infections actually works against us in this particular context. Because in order to show that a vaccine works, the people who have been vaccinated have to naturally come into contact with the pathogen. We're not doing challenge trials where people are being exposed intentionally to coronavirus. So you have to encounter it in your natural life. If you're being very careful, which hopefully everyone is, you're wearing a mask, you're social distancing, chances are you're not going to be exposed to it that much. So they need to give you a little bit more time in order to have that exposure. If we don't get those numbers, then it's going to be hard to show whether or not the vaccine works and how effective it is in the context of people who have been exposed. So that would be happening over the month of October. Then we're looking at November for analyzing these data. And so perhaps by late November, early December, we might be seeing some of the results. But that's just for the Moderna trial that has already started. The other trials aren't even supposed to start until later in August or September and even October.
2: From the news that we've had out of Russia that they have approved a, you know, a vaccine test and they actually think that they have a viable vaccine. Are we aware of exactly what steps they have moved forward a little bit more quickly? than than what we would see in the States?
3: Russia's actually been very open about what they're doing, which is a little bit surprising to me. In the U.S., we've heard all these announcements from the government that they're buying vaccine doses. And not only are they buying them, they're actually manufacturing them, and they're stockpiling them in warehouses, and they're going to wait until the clinical trial results come in and show whether they're beneficial or not. And if they work, we will have this huge dose buildup that we can start rolling out to our citizens. In Russia, they're taking the opposite approach. These vaccines, as I said earlier, 30,000 people are being enrolled in these trials. In Russia, they're saying, what are you more afraid of? Are you more afraid of the coronavirus or are you more afraid of the vaccine? If 30,000 people are willing to roll the dice on this, why don't we just let our entire citizenship decide for themselves if they want it or not? So they've been very open that they haven't even started their phase three clinical trials. They have results on a few hundred people, just like the other trials, that show that there have been no devastating side effects, no anaphylactic shock, no one dying because they were immunized using this coronavirus vaccine. And in Russia, they're just going to let people make that own decision. It's a right to try situation. If you want to get the vaccine, you can get it. And they have approved it. And so now they're claiming to have generated the first formally approved coronavirus vaccine. But the bottom line is, is that it's not an effective vaccine. They have not approved a vaccine that's proven to be effective. So it's not going to be who's first. It's going to be which one works the best. And we just don't know that. In the U.S., we're going to be behind if the vaccines all work because we're going to have waited for the results. In Russia, they're going to be first, but they might not ever know whether their vaccines work or not because the, the benefit that comes might not be entirely and immediately apparent. It depends on how much exposure you have to the virus. And if you're not tracking these people and monitoring how many people do get infected and how many don't, they'll never know how well and whether it's working.
2: So I'm just wondering, along those lines, are there other potential health risks to exposing a population to this vaccine that hasn't had this extent of trials as we're seeing in the U.S.?
3: In addition to side effects like muscle pain, weakness, fever, that sort of thing, there is a really very frightening complication that can come from vaccination, which we've seen with other types of immunizations, including for dengue and other things. And what happens there is the vaccine primes your immune system. It tells the immune system what to look for, that another pathogen, a bad virus, could be coming after it and it allows the immune system to start to start bulking up to take on that fight but there are cases where priming the immune system actually leads to a worse infection in the end so those people who have been vaccinated and then see the virus again naturally from the community actually have a worse case they're more likely to get sick they get more severely ill and they have an increased risk of dying because of the implication of the vaccine. That's the thing that in the United States and in most of the Western world, that public health officials want to be 100% sure that they're not going to actually take people who are completely healthy and who might not ever be exposed to coronavirus and actually make those people worse.
0: Inside COVID-19, from Biz News. Deepak Patel is the Principal Clinical Specialist and Head of Research at Vitality, and he joins us today to talk about enhancements for the 65-plus age group, life expectancy, which has expanded over perhaps the last half century. Just just uh, outline that for us. How much older are we going to live to now on average? So there have been dramatic increases
4: in life expectancy over the last century, um, I think there are a few things that have contributed tremendously to this uh, drop in infant mortality and a decreased number of deaths from infectious diseases early in life. So in industrialized societies, we have now a life expectancy well over 80 But even in uh, poorer countries, you know, a person who's about 60 can expect to live at least till 70. Uh, In industrial countries, a person who's currently 60 can expect to live till 90. What that means is that uh, the demographics of the population has changed. Uh, The proportion of older people of any population, including South Africa, uh, is actually increasing. And so we need to address the needs of older people, make sure that they're fully integrated
0: in society, be as healthy as possible. We really want to find out what Discovery Vitality is doing to encourage people to have a healthier, older age. Generally, the best
4: way to, to be healthy in old ages is to be healthy entering old age. So... Um, you know, we take a lifespan approach and by and large, I think, uh, vitality is encouraging that from a very young age, one needs to engage in, in healthy activities. And they're really quite simple. Uh, the current recommendations are plant-based diet, mainly, not entirely. Uh, secondly, being physically active. Exercise is important, but also activities of daily living. Uh, Thirdly, having adequate sleep. Uh, Fourth, uh, making sure that you're not smoking. Drinking, not at all, if possible, or in absolute moderation. Being socially connected and engaging the brain you know, keeping the brain active. Uh, that has an overlap, really, with what the
0: American Heart Association has called a simple seven. And they're not that difficult on paper. But in practice, I guess one man's healthy existence is another man's uh, sloth. So just starting there, what is enough exercise? Uh,
4: exercise is medicine. Physically, Uh, firstly, most importantly, and we know about the benefits of exercise on cardiovascular health, uh, on reducing heart attacks and improving hypertension um, and strokes, reducing the incidence of strokes. Uh, And the minimum for that is at least about 30 minutes a day Uh, of moderate to vigorous uh, activity for at least five days a week. You can vary that um, as long as you're achieving about 150 minutes of moderate moderate to vigorous activity in a week. And the benefits of that improve. The other benefits of physical activity is uh, mental health. You know, uh, there's now good evidence that physical activity and exercise uh, not only... Uh, treats depression and anxiety, uh, and it's as equivalent, in a sense, as uh, psychotherapy, uh, but it might also prevent uh, mental illness, depression, particularly, and anxiety. So uh, physical activity is important for mental health, for bone health, for respiratory health, um, and a number of other physical kind of benefits
0: when we go into COVID 19 and particularly the 65 plus uh, high risk age group how are you incentivizing them to do this again on exercise does it when you talk about vigorous is walking sufficient
4: Absolutely. We've made some changes for the 65 plus in terms of the points we give uh, for physical activity. We are encouraging people to walk much more and we'll give you more points for the steps you take. If they engage in some activity, they should do more and try and get to the recommended levels of physical activity. So, that's the one big change we've kind of made points for things like visual screening now uh yearing uh, which we are making available on the v h c uh the vitality health check, which you get done at a pharmacy or on wellness days We're also introduced something called a a a functional assessment. we know that You know, the older you get uh, and the more frail a person becomes, their functional impairments, physical functional impairments. So we've introduced a functional assessment, which is to be done. The biokineticist will also give you
0: a set of exercises to improve your functional capacity. So there's lots of nudges towards becoming healthier. When will these be introduced? It's a pretty unique program
4: will will come into effect uh from September. One other thing that we've introduced also in the Vitality Health Check is something called a falls risk assessment. That's a big problem with the 65 plus. In fact, the risk of falling is pretty high as you get older. And we're quite convinced that if we can pick people up uh, who are at risk for falls early, Uh, we can intervene with physical activity, with strength training, with balance
0: training. This has been episode 73 of Inside COVID-19. The full interviews of the highlights that are featured in this podcast are available separately on the biznews.com website or app. Also, by subscribing to Biznews Radio on Spotify or iTunes. Thanks for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.